Oh, good morning. I think my voice is going to hold out better than last week, but I finally got the, the deeper part that I wanted, but I may still crack at the top, so who knows. 1980, the Winter Olympics <clears throat> were held in, now I can't even get through one sentence. <laughs> 1980, the Winter Olympics were held in Lake Placid, New York. The event that was capturing everybody's attention, of course, was ice hockey. And uh, the reason for that was because the Soviet Union had won uh, previous four gold medals. So for 16 years, they dominated international hockey. And the United States was going to try something a little bit different than what they had done in the past. And uh, the head coach, Herb Brooks, held tryouts, selected college players, which wasn't too different at the time, but really just picked them from uh, primarily two different schools, from the University of Minnesota and from Boston. And those two were very bitter rivals uh, because they had just played each other, I think, the national championship. And so they, they weren't real uh, fans of each other. Russian team was basically filled with men. Uh, they were, that, that was their job, really, was to play hockey for the Russians. And uh, the U.S. was filled with a bunch of college kids that only one of them had ever played international hockey before. And players didn't really gel right off the bat. You know, the guys from Minnesota hung out together. The guys from Boston hung out by themselves. And, and they get into scraps during practice and everything. It's tough to find that cohesiveness with the team. And to make matters worse, Coach Brooks was pretty hard on his players. Uh, he was driving them, pushing them harder than they'd ever been pushed before. They played some exhibition games. And their last one, uh, they, you know, they did okay. They like won some, lost some, uh, had some ties. But... Uh, the last one they played was against the Soviets. This was right before the Olympics was getting ready to start. It was in Madison Square Garden in New York. And the U.S. lost that game 10-3. to And if you know anything about hockey, you know that's a pretty, pretty big blowout. It kind of threw a lot of questions at this team. Like, were they good enough? Could they work together to win, do all these things? Well, the Olympics come. The U.S. team did win four games and had one tie in order to move on to the medal round. And uh, the Soviets on their side went undefeated and, like, seriously blew out some teams. Like, they beat Japan 16 to nothing. They did give up four goals to the Netherlands at one point, but they scored 17. So, yeah. <laughs> Two teams would end up meeting in the medal round and, uh, you know, play the first period, and that ends in a tie, 2-2, two to two, which is pretty good, pretty good. Uh, they get through the second period, and the Russians scored the only goal of the period, so now they're down 3-2, to two, and they go into the third and in the third, the U.S. did tie the score on a power play at three. And then a couple shifts later, they scored another goal to go up four to three. And so they're in the lead. Uh, the Soviets had pulled their, their goalie, replaced him, their, their like world-class goalie, and they put, it, put in the backup. But there were still ten minutes left in the game. And uh, I don't think a lot of people had too much hope, but as the game kept going on, uh, you know, they just had to hold on to their lead, and then that's what they did. Of course, you know, we all know that. Um, you know, they call it the miracle on ice, right, because of Al Michaels' amazing call. The team would then go on to win the gold medal against Finland. That's, that's what we always forget, right? That wasn't the gold medal game. <laughs> like, um, but they, they did go on to win the gold medal. And the, this team, though, they, they didn't gel originally, right? But and it, they became unified in their purpose. They, they had unity and their purpose. They became family. Today we're going to be continuing our sermon series in the letter to the Ephesians. Last week we got to the halfway point of the series, and now we're moving on to like a new section that's a little bit more focused on application of what the Apostle Paul wrote in the first half of the letter. 
And so we're going to be in chapter 4 today, so if you've got your Bibles, you want to open them up, follow along with me. But one of the main things that we're looking at today is, like Jeff said, the unity of the church. And remember, Paul's writing to an area which is predominantly filled with Gentiles, um, non-Jewish people. And Paul's been talking about how there's now no distinction between Jew and Gentile. And, uh, you know, the, the, the two have been brought together in one body of believers with Jesus Christ as the head of that body. So in our passage today, Paul's going to give his readers some instruction, which includes unity. So let's start by reading chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. First one says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So Paul starts by mentioning again that he is a prisoner of the Lord, or in the Lord, it could also be translated. So when Paul's writing this letter, he's writing from a Roman prison. We've talked about that. But, you know, he's not really focusing on the Romans being his captives here. You know, he's like, yeah, I'm in a Roman prison, but all of this is, is for God still. You know, everything that it, he does, he knows that it's for the Lord. And so, yeah, he's a prisoner in Rome, but it's still for God's glory. And Paul's not just sitting idly in prison. He's writing letters to the churches that he has planted, churches that he has visited. And he's giving them instruction and encouragement through this time. And like our letter to the Ephesians here. And so he's laying out his instruction to the Ephesian readers saying, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. When it says he's urging them, that's, that's really what he's saying. Right? Like he's emphatically urging them to do this. It's an exhortation. So there's a sense of urgency in this message, but also a, a sense of authority in what Paul wants them to do. And what he wants them to do is live that life that is worthy of the calling they've received. As Christians, we've all been called out of the world to something greater, a life lived in Christ Jesus. Every one of us who has followed Jesus has answered this call. We've been given this call and answered it. But there should be changes in our lives as a result of this call. And, and so Paul reminds the Ephesians that they should live a life that is worthy of that calling. We'll look at a few more practical ways to do this in the next few weeks, uh, especially starting next week as Paul's giving instruction for Christian living. But he continues uh, in this section, in verse 2, with four focuses that can help the believers live this life. First, he says, be completely humble. Humility is one of the key markers of a Christian life. It's kind of hard to be an effective Christian if you're not humble. When pride's rearing its ugly head, we've got to be humble because, you know, we're supposed to be denying ourselves and taking up our cross every day. We get a new identity. It's like we're under new ownership and we're no longer self-employed. We've come under the management of Christ. And because of what he's done for, for us, because of his love for us, our lives should be focused on him and serving his kingdom, which is everlasting and never destroyed, unlike our kingdom, which is temporary and finite. We should be humble, placing our others before ourselves, placing Christ above ourselves. But not only are we to be humble, but we're also to be gentle. Gentleness is one of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.23. It's not naivety. It's not being spineless or anything like that. But there's a softness that is like the opposite of like when your heart is hard. 
it's having principles, it's being firm on those principles, but when you're relating to others, gentleness. Humility and gentleness, they go together, and it's not always something we see in the world today, even amongst Christians. But we strive to be humble and gentle because of Christ. That's how he described himself. You know, when he's telling people to, to come and, and find rest, come to him and find rest in Matthew chapter 11, he says this in verse 29, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am what? Gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So be humble, be gentle, also be patient. Patience is the idea of being long-suffering. That's how the King James translates it, is long-suffering. This is one of the traits of God as described by him when he's passing in front of Moses in the book of Exodus. He's described as slow to anger. I've talked about this before, but they, they use a, the image of your nose. Like if you're long-nosed, you're slow to anger. That's like literally what it means in Hebrew is that you're long-nosed. Because anger apparently like... You know, when you get mad, you get heat in your nose. And the faster it gets to your face, the shorter your temper is, <laughs> I guess. Like, I am, I'm long-nosed in most things until we get to golf. <laughs> and then my nose gets a lot shorter. <laughs> Paul says a Christian should be patient. And again, that's just trying to be like God. There's an atheist one time who's named uh, Robert Ingersoll. I think it was late 1800s. He's lecturing somewhere, and he took out a watch, and he said, I'll give God five minutes to strike me dead for the things that I've said. Minutes ticked off, and he just waited. Didn't say anything. He was just waiting. Got about four and a half minutes. There were some women in the crowd start fainting, I guess. They're like, oh, somebody's going to die. <laughs> five minutes are up. Nothing happened. So Ingersoll just... <laughs> Didn't say anything. He just put his watch away and just kept going. Uh, uh, there was a preacher named Joseph Parker who somebody had told this story to, and he's like, well, he asked a question. He said, did the gentleman think he could exhaust the patience of the eternal God in five minutes? We need to be patient as God is patient, which is probably a little bit longer than five minutes. I mean, praise God, it's a little bit longer than five minutes. <laughs> The fourth focus that Paul said can help believers live that life that's worthy of the calling is to bear with one another in love related to patience. It's also called forbearance. One commentator defines it. It's the practical outworking of long-suffering. It's bearing with each other's weaknesses through our love for them. John Stott says that it's the mutual tolerance without which no group of human beings can live together in peace. Now, all four of these traits, living that Christian life, they're brought together in one overarching one, and that's love. It's all in love. It's really the only way that we're going to be able to do these well is out of our love for one another. When we love one another, we're going to be humble, right? Because we're not going to seek power. We're not going to try and lord anything over anybody. We're gentle with those who we love. We're definitely more patient with those we love. And we're going to bear with each other's weaknesses. And we do all of these things out of love. And again, it always points back to the fact that we can do this because of God. Because he has loved us in the same way 
it's a better way, it's a more perfect way. But out of that, we can show others imperfectly. But we can do our best and we can show others out of love these four traits. He's empowered us to be able to do that as well. What's all this leading to, though? Well, it's leading to verse 3 where it says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. When it says to make every effort, I think our modern mind frame might think like, well, try your best. But that's not what he's saying. He is saying literally, like, do everything you can to do this. Don't leave anything on the table. Be zealous about this. Keeping the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. The unity we have comes from the Holy Spirit. I mean, if we remember back in Ephesians 2.22, and in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We are being built together to be that temple in which the spirit dwells. We do have to remember that the unity that Paul's writing about here is the unity between Jews and Gentiles in particular, having become one body in Christ. These two sides were very antagonistic to each other, especially when it comes to religion. But through Christ, they are no longer separate. So Paul desires that they would do whatever they can to continue in the unity that they found, doing this through the bond of peace. Christ has given them peace. They need to make every effort to keep it. Now we continue the talk on unity as we move into the next few verses, verses 4 through 6. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Unity in the Christian church, it revolves around the Trinity, and that's what Paul's writing about here. What Paul writes are the seven elements of, of the Christian faith here in particular, and he's stressing this word one, one body. They're originally two separate bodies, Jews and Gentiles, but now they have been made together into one. Even the two separate bodies are composed of a lot of different groups within them, but now there is unity in one body as we've seen throughout this letter. There's one spirit, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit indwells every believer. He's taken up residence in their hearts. It's through the Spirit that we are given access to the Father through the cross. There's one hope to which we're called. Hope is defined as the eager expectation of the outworking of God's plan. One commentator writes about the hope that is presented in Ephesians, and he says, The hope to which God has called them is linked with the summing up of all things in Christ, which is the final purpose of God's saving activity in his Son. Hope is what these Gentile readers did not have before Christ. I think this is still the hope that we're called to now, the salvation that is found only in Jesus. And that leads to the next, which is one Lord. Paul moves from talking about the Holy Spirit, and he's now talking about Jesus himself. Christ is the one Lord who provided redemption, hope, and headship over the church. Warren Wearsby writes that this is our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, lives for us, and one day will come for us. It is through his death on the cross that we even have unity. Like, that broke down all the barriers that were separating us to form one body with Christ as the head. And yet we still struggle today to have unity as Christians. 
The fifth on the list is one faith. It's likely referring to the common belief of Christians. It is the faith, and it's unified. It's one faith. There isn't a separate faith for Jews. There's not a separate one for Gentiles. There's only one faith. There can be only one faith since we have only one Lord. That's the thing. We can disagree on a lot of things about Christians, or as Christians. We can disagree on some stuff. We cannot disagree on our faith in God, our faith in Christ. That, that's not one of the things. Without that, we're not really unified. Paul moves on to say that there is one baptism. He's not saying, he's not making a distinction here whether he's talking about water baptism or spiritual baptism, but, or baptism by the Spirit. Uh, but you can't really have one without the other, so... Uh, those who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And in Galatians, Paul links baptism with unity. He says in Galatians 3.27, For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now the final thing that Paul says here is that there is one God and Father. Over all, through all, and in all. We see the third member of the Trinity here, the Father. God unifies us. He is God over all believers. He works through all believers. And he is in all believers. As Christians, we have been adopted into his family. We all serve the same Father and love him. And so, shouldn't we be able to be unified with other Christians? And we have the perfect model of unity, and, and that's through the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons, all perfectly unified in love with one another for eternity. A perfect, eternal love in unity. Those verses 4, 5, and 6, they kind of feel like something that you could repeat, right, and remember. You know, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. So now we're going to move from talking about unity to talking about the grace of Christ in the next few verses. Verse 7 says, But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is, is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. To each one of us, to each and every Christian, we have been given grace as God has apportioned it or as he has assigned it. We talked about what grace means earlier in this series. It just means unmerited or undeserved favor. For Christians... Grace is not something that we can earn. It's not something that we can buy. It's a gift of God. So this passage moves really from a unity in the body to a diversity in the body. Because as we see in verse 8, Christ, when he ascended on high in his grace, he gives us gifts to his people. And what are these gifts? Well, throughout the new letters in the New Testament, we see lists of, of the gifts that are given, spiritual gifts. There's five of these lists in total. Well, for example, one of these is Romans 12, verses 6 through 8, which says, We have different gifts according to the grace given each, to each of us. 
If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. All the other letters have, that have lists are kind of similar to this. But these lists, you know, when put together, it's, it's kind of neat because, you know, all the lists differ from each other, but they do illustrate uh, various gifts. But it's not even an exhaustive list, most people think. Uh, you know, even if you put them all together, it's not an exhaustive list. But the listing in Ephesians 4, it's still a little bit different than, than these. So I'll, I'll read that here. Um, Ephesians 4, verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. So this list, just a short one, five, to, five things, and it's people. It's people who are gifted, but the people are the gifts. And so Paul starts with apostles and prophets, which we've talked about because they're the foundation on which the church is built on. We saw that earlier in Ephesians 2.20. Apostle literally means someone who has been sent on a commission. It's like a messenger, an envoy. Harold Honer writes that an apostle is an official delegate of Jesus Christ, commissioned for the specific tasks of proclaiming authoritatively the message in oral and written form and of establishing and building up the churches. Now, the prophets, according to Honer, were uh, ones who were endowed by the Holy Spirit with the gift of prophecy for the purposes of edification, comfort, encouragement, which is based on 1 Corinthians 14.3, which says, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort, and further to understand and communicate the mysteries and revelation of God to the church. Now, prophecy could have a predictive element to it, like some prophets could, would talk about the future. It's really not that often, though, as you look at it in Scripture comparatively. Um, Honer writes, though, in the present verse, the prophet is listed among the foundational gifted persons who prepare the saints for ministry and build up this new body, the church, revealed from the mystery. Now, the third on the list of, of these gifts is evangelists. And, and that's really not much different than what we would have today. Evangelists are those who are gifted to go out and preach the gospel. Um, in the early church, evangelists were those who were, went behind, like they were the successors to the apostles. They, they took the gospel to new places. They planted churches. They would appoint shepherds over those areas. And then they would move on and do the same thing on and on. And, uh, you know, we, our, our friend Tracy Killinger, you know, is an example of this. He is an evangelist. That's what he does. He, he goes out and just preaches the gospel. Uh, we should have Tracy back. It's, it's, it's always exciting when he's here. <laughs> um, but next we have pastors and teachers. And these two are kind of grouped together, but they're not the same. Pastor is somebody who's a shepherd, that's what a pastor means. It's shepherd is literally what the word means. And the role is to shepherd the flock of God's people within a local church. So this would be like my role here. And it's somebody who leads the people. They care for the people. They feed the people, pray for them, comfort them. And I would say we have a pretty good idea what a teacher is, right? Somebody who gives instruction. And that's where these two come together a bit, because all pastors should be teachers. 
but not all teachers are pastors. Like for the pastors, it is a qualification for a pastor to be able to teach, for a pastor or elder. Um, but not all teachers are going to be pastors. Like they may be incredibly gifted in teaching. They may you may see them in a Sunday school or a Bible study or something. And they may have wonderful insights and everything. But shepherding is not their gift. You know, like taking care of people is not their gift. Um, and that's okay. We see people, you know, they're gifted at that. Um, what's the purpose of these gifts? Well, we go back at Ephesians 4, verse 12, where it says it's to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So the reason people are gifted in this way, the reason that, God, that Christ gifted these people to the church is that they're to equip God's people, to, to equip them, prepare them for works of service, for ministry, building up the body of Christ as well. And it's not just like numerically building up the body of Christ, but it's more like edifying the church. The body of Christ is being instructed and improving. That's what edifying means. And this is what it, it should be when we come to church. Like we should, be, we should be preparing you for works of service. We really should be preparing each other for works of service in order that the church may be edified. And how long do we do this? Verse 13 says, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So what does it mean to be mature? That's kind of what we'll close with here. Verses 14 through 16 says, Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. When we mature, we're, we're not a kid anymore. We can, we can oftentimes, you know, when we're a kid, you know, you kind of follow whatever sounds good. And we can still be an infant, spiritually speaking. When you become a Christian, no matter what your age is, you're still a baby Christian. And, and you just don't always have the experience or the knowledge or, or anything, really, to help you understand how to be a Christian. That's kind of what we're here for as a church, is to help grow you in that. But when you're, when you're that way, like any teaching sounds appealing. And, and you get, you know, like he, he talks about, you get tossed about by the waves and... and you're blown here and there by the wind of teaching. And there are also false teachers out there. False teachers who are pretty crafty in their message. But as we mature, we, what we do is we start to build a foundation that is built on the word of God. When we get into scripture and we have a better understanding that you're not going to be afraid of other teachers or a false teaching. You're going to be able to discern things better. And then, you know, you might have something come up in a Sunday school class, you're watching a video, or you're, you're watching a YouTube debate, or in a book you're reading, and instead of just being like, oh my gosh, 
or or being like, oh, that's wonderful teaching there. You can have some discernment and like, wait a second, that doesn't seem right. But you're not going to be afraid of it. You're just going to have a conversation about it and be like, this is why it's not right because I know what's in Scripture. Most importantly, we're doing this together as a body of believers. We speak the truth in love to one another. And we grow together as a body with Christ as our head. We are part of that body. We are joined and held together. We're growing together. We're building ourselves up. We are edifying ourselves in love. And each of us is doing our part in unity. There is so much in this passage. I probably, I got about you know, three-quarters of the way through it, and I was like, I should have split this in two. But I didn't. <laughs> There's a lot. But let me sum it up best I can. <laughs> we need to live a life that's worthy of our calling. We need to be humble and gentle like Christ. Patient and bearing with one another. We need to keep the unity of the body of Christ. And in that body, Christ has given us people who are gifted to help grow his church up. To no longer be infants, but mature Christians who are being equipped to do works of service. And we do this together in unity. As one writer puts it, be good stewards of God's grace and fulfill your role in the body. Live the truth in love. It is not beyond you, for it is enabled by being attached to Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, our prayer today is that we as the body here at Maple Grove, just one small part of the body of believers in the church worldwide, but I pray that we would continue to grow together. That, that we would do the things that Paul writes here to, to be humble and gentle and patient and, and have forbearance. That we would continue to have unity in those seven things. And that we would just be able to be a light because of our unity to others who need you, Lord. Because there's a lot of people in this community who need you, who are not being served at, at you know, they're not going to church. They're not choosing churches. They're choosing everything else. And part of that's probably our fault. But we can try and do our part here to be a shining light, a beacon for you. Because we know, we know, that's why we're here. We, we know that it's, it's because of you, Lord, that we are made whole. It's because of you that we can even have that unity. You have saved us. So, Father, I, I pray that as we go through our weeks, rest of the year, that we would intentionally work to be a light in our community as best we can. We know that this is only made possible through the sacrifice of Jesus. 
We take the time in our service now to remember that sacrifice with communion as we will take the bread representing his body which is broken on the cross and the blood, the juice representing the blood that was spilled. And we just take this time to remember the sacrifice that he made on our behalf, taking our sins and leaving them there. We thank you, Lord. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.